Well, good morning once again, Church of the Living God, and it is uh, indeed uh, just a continued presence, uh, or uh, rather privilege, I meant to say, to be with you in this way. Although not ideal, the uh, topic certainly is ideal. I just want to commend all of you for sticking with it in this series on the attributes of God. No doubt it has been um, a mentally and spiritually challenging and perhaps even taxing time together. And it ought to be, we're studying one of the most um, complex and vast beings of the entire universe, and that being the study of God himself. And um, last week we studied a very challenging topic on the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God has left uh, uh, no small impact on serious students of the scripture. And I hope that it had an impact on um, you as believers as well. And I want to just commend you that uh, that is probably about as tough as it gets, just so you know. The sovereignty of God is uh, very um, uh, challenging on many different levels, and uh, you all prove to uh, have what it takes to be able to probe some of these uh, magnificent depths of our, of our Creator. And uh, I, I want to say, no doubt, a series like this, we should probably end one day if we can maybe get back together again soon with a Q&A time. That would be fabulous, where you can just kind of store up your questions and fire away. I love that type of environment. And uh, we can have fellowship again. We could long for that and maybe clarify some of these. Um, and also, in the meantime, begin kind of thinking through what what are some of your favorite attributes, if you were. It's hard to pin down any one of them, and we love them all. But uh, begin to think, how, how, does, how do each of these uh, begin to impact your life as, as we go? Another thing I want to mention is that we are learning about God right now and, and his character and his being. And there's a lot of questions and applications as to how does this fit with man and, and my life. And well, we're not studying man right now. That That is a, a possible future study. The Bible speaks very clearly to man's condition and man's makeup and, and uh, all different factors there. But we're studying God. And today being no exception, um, I'd like you to begin making your way to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is going to be our text. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 if you want to make your way to Isaiah. You will be familiar with a very common song, a worship song, praise song, hymn rather, that um, was written in 1826 by Reginald Heber. And it goes like this, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. This is, of course, a, an amazing song of worship taken from our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be seeing a lot of correlation here between that and the text before us. 
And I just want to begin by reading this text collectively in our hearing that we can begin to focus on one of the most critical, critical attributes of God, and that being his holiness. Follow along as I read Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's just begin our time with a brief moment of prayer as we contemplate the, the holiness of our God. Our God and Father, we thank you for your very being. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you, as we will see today, is a, are a God of holiness. You represent many attributes to us in Scripture, but holiness really is one that stands out among them all. Lord, as we study this section of Isaiah's vision of you and your holiness, may we also this morning catch even but a glimpse of your holiness, and may we begin to see how that is to be applied in our very lives today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before we get into the actual text here, I have some introductory material. Again, you should have your uh, notes in front of you, a little two-page uh, section here entitled, Our Holy God. That's what we have entitled this message this morning. And um, I'm going to begin just by way of introduction by saying that this issue of God's holiness really needs to be understood first and foremost as a crowning attribute, a crowning attribute. It is a very, very special attribute. It is an exalted attribute. Uh, the attribute of God's holiness is indeed special. All of his attributes are special, but holiness carries really a unique place among them all. If we were to try, and we can't do this, but if we were to try to bundle all of the attributes of God into one handful, you can never do this. I'm, I'm being goofy here, but if you could, if you could grab them all, uh, in that process, holiness would find its way to the top. It is a crowning attribute. I say this because it is the only singular attribute in the scripture declared around the throne day and night, morning, evening, and night, holy, holy, holy. It is the only attribute in Scripture that we see repeated in triplicate, as we have seen, and we'll talk about later. It is only of God who we can say he is not just holy, but he is holier. In fact, he is the holiest being in the entire universe. And it transfers through the Trinity as well. The Son of God is known as the Holy One of Israel. The Spirit of God is known as God's Holy Spirit. We speak of the Holy Land, the God's Holy Word. And 
God's holiness is, is the sum and completion of all his moral excellencies, and it is his crowning excellency. This is a crowning, crowning attribute. It's also a traumatizing attribute, as we will see. When you really come to grips with the holiness of God and you're looking at it in its purity and its intensity, it results in internal trauma, no doubt. And, and the holiness of God can, can produce fear in mankind. It can produce guilt. And in the case of Isaiah, it can even produce panic in a prophet of God. As we experience the, the, uh, the uncontrolled and unraveling of the human psyche when it truly and honestly comes to grips with God's holiness. And the reason being, as we shall see, is that when we see the holiness of God, we are not only seeing God in his purity, but we are seeing ourselves in our impurity. And we must remember that throughout this entire lesson. It's a crowning attribute. It's a traumatizing attribute. But it's also, can I tell you, a transformation, a, a transformational attribute, you could say. It's, it's transforming. And you will never be the same after you come to grips with the holiness of God. It is life-changing, and it transforms all those who come into contact with it. Psychology cannot transform a person long-term. There can be some temporary benefits. Self-help methods cannot transform. Education alone cannot transform. But the holiness of God, when it grips you, it will begin the process of transforming you to the core and giving meaning to the phrase, be holy yourselves, for I am holy. Well, we need to begin with a definition, as is our custom in these types of lessons. What is holiness? What are we referring to when we talk about the holiness of God? Well, it's written in your notes there. And I've defined the holiness of God this morning as that aspect of God's nature, whereby he is completely separate from his creation. And he is morally undefiled and unblemished by any form of evil. Just, just ponder that definition for one moment here. It's a two-part definition where he is, first of all, completely separate from his creation. He is nothing like it. In that sense, he is holy from his creation. But there is a moral aspect to this attribute and that he is morally undefiled. He is morally and ethically unblemished, untouched, by any form of evil. And that is really the definition that we're going to work with here. As you continue in your notes, I have a spot there where it says uh, there's a primary meaning of this attribute and a secondary meaning. And we're going to get to the text in just a moment, but this is just foundational for us to understand. The primary meaning, if you're taking notes, is that God is separate from his creation. Would you write that in? God is separate from his creation. In this sense, the holiness of God means his highness and his exalted nature, his otherness, his transcendentness, his holiness. The root of this word holy in the Old Testament has to do with cutting or, or separating. It's used of, of, of uh, cutting a, a, a large sheet in half or separating an item into pieces. And it means to be separated uh, above, really, a, a cut above, as it were. In other words, we are separate from God. He is a cut above us. We are not even on his level, and he is not on ours. This primary meeting emphasizes God's majesty and his regal splendor. It, it is his dazzling glory that we speak of when we speak of his supreme and utter holiness. Now, there's some scripture there as well, if you want to jot down a couple here. 
Exodus 15 and verse 11 asks the question, who is, thee, who is uh, like thee, rather, among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee? And then it says, majestic in holiness. Here, uh, exalting the aspect of God's holiness, connecting it with his majesty. And, and then in Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 2, it says, there is none holy like our God. Uh, again, exalting the attribute of God's holiness. Or Isaiah 57, 15, I am the Lord, there is no other. I dwell in a high and holy place. There's that aspect of separate, high, majestic. I am above you. I am beyond you. I am apart from you. And this is its primary meaning. And in this sense, if you would just note that it is in this sense where this holiness of God is an incommunicable attribute, meaning that element of the holiness of God cannot be shared with man, for God would cease to be holy if he shared that element of his holiness with man. But there's a secondary meaning in your notes, too, if you would look. The secondary meaning, if you'd please write in, is a separation from moral pollution. The first was a separation from his creation. The second is a separation from moral pollution. And here's where we start to begin to feel a little bit of the trauma of holiness and the burning heat that it can produce in our lives. We have gone now from being enamored with God's majesty and his highness to being haunted, as it were, by his morality, by his utter purity, and by his integrity as our maker. And we are accountable to him. God is set apart and he is distanced from all that is unclean and impure and evil and criminal and ethically blemished. And that is us. And so the scripture here that speaks to some of this is Habakkuk 1 and 13. Thine eyes are too pure to approve or to look upon evil. You can't even look upon wickedness with favor. And know this, ladies and gentlemen, that God will never wink an eye at evil. He will not wink an eye at our evil. He will not wink an eye at the evil of the world. He will never look away. He will never turn a blind eye to this. The fact is, is that he does see it. And a time is coming where he will deal with it permanently. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. And Matthew 5.48 says, Your Father in heaven is perfect. And so this is the moral purity aspect of God. Now, as we begin to get into our text, I just want to make mention of a couple more quotes here. It was Thomas Watson who said, the holiness of God is the most sparkling jewel of his crown. And uh, Edward Lay from A Treatise in Divinity said, said, without holiness, his wisdom would be but subtlety, his justice would be cruelty, his sovereignty, which we studied last week, would be tyranny, and his mercy would be foolish pity. It's a good quote to, to show how the holiness of God and the fullness of its meaning uh, gathers all those other uh, attributes, and they are disciplined under that aspect of his holiness. And so there's other things we could talk about there. I want to move on, but there's kind of your definition as we begin. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time here in this very text of Isaiah because it is amazing. If you turn your page to, to your second page of notes there, we're going to begin here. With that as kind of introduction, we're going to start picking apart this text because it's a fascinating, fascinating text here. Isaiah chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. And uh, again, if you're taking notes, we're under the exposition of the holiness of God. 
And would you write in under point A there that God, what we're going to first of all see is God is exalted in holiness. That's, that's kind of that first component of the definition of the holiness of God. God is exalted in holiness. Now I want to read in verse 1 here. It says that in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord. This is a vision, of course. We know that no man can see God, the true and living God, completely unveiled. This is a vision that uh, Isaiah is receiving of God. But he says an interesting phrase here. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, uh, this occurred in 740 B.C., King Uzziah uh, was, a, was a good king of Israel. He was not a perfect king. He did not make every uh, uh, decision, uh, it was not the best decision for him, but, but he did provide a long and extended season of stability for the children of Israel. And there was a certain degree of sadness upon his death. Any good leader who has provided stability for any length of time, there is a, there's a sadness when that time comes. And so you can kind of feel the moment here in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. The Lord was gracious to give Isaiah this vision. He says, I saw the Lord. In other words, when, when, the, human, when the human king died, I saw the real king. I saw the true king. God here makes in this vision a personal visit to Isaiah. And it's interesting when you look at the text here, there's some wording I want to point your attention to. It says, in the year that King Uzziah of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. You'll notice that is a capital L with lowercase. That is the Hebrew word Adonai, my Lord. I saw my Lord. This is often in scripture used and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at Psalm 110, you'll see some interchange between Adonai and Yahweh, but that'll come in handy later because this is Adonai sitting on a throne. In other words, the, the, the human king who was on his throne has expired. The human king has failed, but the divine king is on his throne. The Lord reigns as we studied last week. He is indeed on his throne. And will you note that he describes this king sitting on his throne as lofty and exalted. Lofty and exalted. That is high and lifted up. God is always above. There is that holiness aspect of being separate and cut above. He is beyond us. He is distinct from us. And this is how Isaiah has seen his God. And beloved, I just have to say... In the church, in the modern evangelical church today, it feels like we have lost this element of, uh, element of reverence and the highness of God, have we not? And, and, and the church sees God in such a lower state today. The modern church does. They, they kind of de-exalt God. And they, they view him, you know, God is my buddy. God is my friend. God is cool. God is a dude. God is the man upstairs. But very rarely do we see God as high and lifted up. And that, that, is, that is something that we have lost. And whenever the saints in history have lost this, the church suffers. And the impact of the church suffers. But whenever in history the church retains this high view of God, they impact their generation with a marked view of the holiness of God. It goes hand in hand. Well, you note that the text goes on and says that, that he is lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is, a, this is an amazing, amazing truth here. 
he's high and exalted, but but envision this train of his, the, a kingly train of his robe is what this is, is filling the temple. Now, the 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 robe, the train of a king marked his royalty in history. It marked his majesty. It, it is it is defining the the extent of his sovereignty and his rule. The longer a king's train was in history, the more power and authority and majesty he would bring with him upon his visit. And here it is not just a long train. It is not even a train where the attendants have to attend to it. This train is filling the temple. I mean, just get the picture of this. There seems to be no end to his train is what the, the writer is attempting to communicate here. It's filling the entire temple. And then in verse 2, we read an amazing thing here. It says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Seraphim. You say, what are seraphim? Well, seraphim are like cherubim, if you know what they are. Seraphim and cherubim are holy angelic beings. And they are, they are angelic beings designed and centered around worship, first of all, but then also centered around executing God's will. Angels is what they are, angelic beings. And um, we see an interesting descriptor of here. It says, each of them having six wings. Why do they have six wings? Well, we know that God doesn't create anything. These are creatures of God. God does not create anything without a purpose and without being functional and without a specific design. And so uh, it, it actually tells us why he created, uh, why they have these six wings. It says, first of all, with two, he covered his face. Uh, you could make a note under this that uh, this is a purpose of survival. This, this uh, uh, seraphim must cover his face in the presence of the living God because of the almighty burning glory of this holy God. It, it's a survival mechanism on the part of this created being because no created being can bear the unmasked, unfiltered uh, glory of God. Remember, even Moses tried to take a look and, and he said, you, you, can't, you can't handle this glory. Uh, but I'll put you in a, I'll veil you a little bit in the cleft of the rock and you'll, you'll see portions of my glory. So even the angelic beings who note this, ladies and gentlemen, have never known sin. They must veil their face in the presence of this holy God. But will you notice that uh, it also says with two, he covered his feet. What does this mean? This is a symbol of humility. There is... There is a uh, covering of the face for, for protection, and there is a covering with another set of wings of the feet to mark humility in the presence of God. It, there's a sense in which even though the angels uh, are not on the ground, they are in the presence of holiness and on holy ground. You remember because uh, uh, Jesus, um, God, when he was dealing with Moses in the burning bush, he said, remember what he told him? He said, take your shoes off, Moses. Take your shoes off, Moses. Why? Because the ground upon which you are standing is what? Holy ground. It's holy ground. And there's a sense that even though these angelic beings are up in the air, there is still a holiness about them and a message that they are sending that, that we are humble creatures. In all of our glory as cherubim or seraphim, they are yet 
humbled. And then the third, uh, the third uh, descriptor is that with two he flew. With two he flew. This is just service. There's survival, humility, and service. Two he flew, ready to do God's bidding, ready to execute God's will in the redemptive purposes of God, which we will see as we proceed through. And so they, these beautiful, beautiful uh, creatures are made to stand uh, in the presence of God. And look what they say in verse 3 that says, One called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is amazing that in an antiphonal fashion, I don't know if you've ever heard an antiphonal choir. Some of you who are more familiar with music maybe have even sung in one. I've had the privilege of singing in an antiphonal choir. It's where you have a choir in front of the church and a choir in back of the church that maybe people don't know is there. And the choir in front blasts the congregation with an amazing, amazing uh, truth about God put to song. And then it's echoed from behind. And it's this antiphonal fashion. It's beautiful. Well, that's where this comes from, is that the, that the seraphim are also singers. They're worshipers. And one is crying out to another, holy, holy, holy. And there's a sense in which, what, what, are these, what are these seraphim other than the jewels of God's crown? It's almost as if he has a floating crown of angels all around him. And that floating crown sings without ceasing, day and night, holy, 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 in antiphonal fashion, singing to one another, singing to their God, authoring this song of, of, of tribute to his holiness, this, this anthem, as it were. And again, they have good theology, which results in good doxology. I'd love to hear the song, would you not? I would love to hear how a seraphim's voice sounds. But we know that it's only rooted in the fact that they have good theology. They have a theology of God. They have an understanding of the holiness of God. And as a result, they can then sing those words and mean them and have proper understanding of what that means. Holy, holy, holy. Now, as I said in the introduction, this issue of God's holiness is the only singular attribute of God ever in the scriptures revealed to us in triplicate. Did you know that? Holy, holy, holy. You never see anything other, other attribute of God repeated in triplicate. It's worth noting. Now, Jesus used this technique, and the Hebrews would use this for emphasis. You remember when Jesus used this technique. Jesus would say, before he would say something, uh, he would say, uh, uh, truly, truly, right? And we see this in the scriptures. Jesus would say truly first, and then he'd say what he has to say. Uh, others you know, and by the way, why I mention that is because the word truly, truly in the Greek is amen, amen. In other words, Jesus would say amen before he would say the sermon. And, and we, we say amen after the sermon. Well, Jesus said, what you're about to hear is truth, truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, now listen up, and then we would hear his words. Well, here in a superlative fashion, we have holy, holy, holy. Holy, and it's the only attribute of God. You can look, you can search. It's the only one repeated in triplicate for emphasis here. In other words, you never see in the scriptures, God is love, love, love. Although God is a God of eternal love, as we will soon see. You, you never hear that, that God is truth, truth, truth. Although God is a God of infinite truth, is he not? Or wrath, wrath, wrath. 
although he will return and judge the world with infinite and everlasting wrath. But we do see here in the scriptures and only here in Isaiah 6 that God is holy, holy, holy. These are the superlative. It is not just holy. It is not just holier. It is holiest to the superlative. And God is, is doing this for emphasis. He wants us to understand that this attribute, among all the attributes, has a very, very special place in the heart of God and in his redemptive work. And I'll just tell you, loved ones, this is something we really need to meditate upon, the holiness of God. This is... This explains so many problems in the local church today. And, and um, you know, praise God that, that God is building his church and, and that we need not be frustrated by some of the things that we see in, in modern Christianity today. But um, God is purifying his church, no doubt. But I will tell you this, that it is a failure to understand the holiness of God that is frequently tied to our shallowness in the Christian church today. The Christian church can be so shallow, and it's because we don't understand the holiness of God. It is a failure to understand the holiness of God that leads to our shallowness, that, that leads to our foolishness, that leads to our selfishness, and that leads to our weakness and ineffectiveness sometimes as believers and as a church corporate. And, and unfortunately, the reality is, is that we don't understand this doctrine, and that's why we compromise. And, and that's why we toy with sin when we ought to be running from sin. This is a, an attribute of God that we must all come to grips with. And I think of the book of Revelation where, again, you know, the angels have come to grips with this. The seraphim and the cherubim, uh, or the seraphim have come to grips with this. But then in Revelation 4 and verse 8, we see these four living creatures. And I wonder if this is a, an echo of this. And the four living creatures, Revelation 4, 8, each of them having six wings. And um, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and, to, and who is to come. Tying his holiness with his eternity. He is eternally holy. Well, I need to move on. This is God exalted in holiness. And let me just add, there's a quote in there uh, from R.C. Sproul that says, Any attempt to understand God apart from his holiness is idolatry. We need to press this point. It's idolatry. If you try to have a God that is not a holy God, you have made your own God. God is a God of holiness. And um, this brings us to our second point, which we need to... Uh, uh, underscore today that not only is God exalted in holiness, but will you note, please, that Isaiah is humbled in lowliness. There is a relationship here between the holiness of God and the humility of man. Will you look at it beginning in verse 4? Isaiah is humbled in lowliness. It says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. We'll just work through this a little bit here. The foundations of the thresholds trembled. Now is where we begin to introduce the impact of holiness. Now we begin to see the result of holiness in the life of an individual as it comes into his presence. And we see some trauma beginning to have here. 
and we see an earthquake and we see smoke happening and where there's smoke there's fire is there not i mean this is almost like a movie scene there uh, scene there's an earthquake happening and smoke and fire and things are starting to unravel and fall apart god's kind of uh, tearing up the place i like to say and now the trauma of this attribute of god comes and uh, will you note it says the foundations of the thresholds trembled and this is not a bad thing because we remember even last week when we read psalm 99:1. remember it says the lord reigns let the earth shake i love that and it reminds me of the earthquakes that we were in, in in california where yes there was a certain terror to them no doubt but there was also a certain amount of realizing that uh, god's shaking the place up God, god's reminding us of his presence let the earth shake let it tremble and it's just a, a, a beautiful imagery here of the impact of the holiness and the presence of God creates a shaking in the temple, in the, in, the, in the temple thresholds. And nature is reacting to the presence of God. And if nature is reacting, how much more so should we react? Uh, look at the text here. It even says, it shows Isaiah's reaction. After the temple is uh, uh, trembling, it says... Uh, uh, the, at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Look at verse 5, and we see Isaiah's reaction. Then I said, woe is me. Woe is me. I am ruined, Isaiah says. I'm ruined. He says, I'm coming apart. I'm falling apart. The temple's being torn apart, and I'm feeling like I'm coming apart. I'm ruined at the core. Woe is me. This is amazing, amazing imagery of the prophet to use this word. Let me point out for a minute how serious this is, why he says, woe is me. We use woe is me when we're having a bad day or whatever. It's not anything like that, loved ones. Here, let me explain to you. This is the most profound expression we see coming from the mouth of a prophet in all of Scripture here. Because as you know, the prophet's job was to pronounce woe, right? A prophet would pronounce woe upon a nation. Prophets would pr pronounce woe upon the people of, of God, Israel. Jesus used this word, remember, in Matthew where he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus was a prophet and he used the term woe. This was a prophet's job. He, he, he was employed to use this term and the word means curse. It means judgment. It means really damnation. And it's a warning when woe is pronounced upon you. It's a warning to repent. And here in, in a profound, profound way with amazing imagery, the prophet Isaiah pronounces woe as is his job, right? As is his job. But he does not pronounce woe upon a people or a nation. He pronounces woe upon himself. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. Cursed is me. Judgment to me. Damnation to me. And in an amazing way, a prophet prophesies against himself. This is powerful, powerful imagery here. Just, just look at this. And, and, you know, when we, when we hear Isaiah say this, we, we, we ask ourselves, well, what's, what's wrong, Isaiah? What's the problem? I mean, you've seen God, right? 
you could uh, you could go on tour and you could write a book and you could get some royalties out of this deal and, and have a lot of speaking engagements. What's the problem, Isaiah? I think you should lighten up. And and Isaiah says nothing of that. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. Why? And here it is, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts you see he got a vision of God this day and in an amazing way Isaiah is pronouncing woe upon himself and what he's saying is I'm a man of unclean lips what does this mean it simply means I have a dirty mouth I have a dirty mouth and he says my people have a dirty mouth and why this was so, so convicting to the prophet is because the prophet is typically the best in the land. It is the best that Israel has to offer. And if the prophet's mouth is dirty, the, the mouth, which is the in, instrument by which the word of God flows through, how then can we expect the people's mouths not to be dirty? And this is just an imagery here. I, Isaiah uses this particular sin. But it's an imagery is that of I am unclean, I am unclean and my people are unclean and I have a message about the purity and the holiness of God and it's inconsistent. And this is why Isaiah is falling apart and he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord of armies. I've seen the king and it's not, it's not Uzziah. It's not King Uzziah, it's King Yahweh. And by the way, you'll note here in, in verse 5, well, in verse 1, I, he says, I saw Adonai. And then in verse 5, he says, my eyes have seen the King Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And he is blending these two Hebrew words here. First, he uses Adonai, which is often used of Christ, uh, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. And then... Um, uh, or pre-incarnate pre references, I should say, to Christ. And now I've seen Yahweh. Interesting there. Ponder that just for a little bit. But I, I've seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I've seen God. And I think what we need to understand here is that Isaiah has not only seen God in this vision, but why this was so traumatizing for him is not merely that he saw God for the first time, but I believe it is traumatizing to Isaiah because this is the first time in Isaiah's life that Isaiah has seen Isaiah, right? He has seen Isaiah. He has seen himself in light of God. And, and, and he realizes he's not pure. And he realizes there is a problem here. And, you know, one time I shared this text with a... Uh, a friend of mine at work who was struggling, she was a believer, she is a believer, and she's struggling with uh, profanity. She says, I swear so much, and I try to do the nickel in the jar each time, and I'm, I, I just can't beat this issue of my dirty mouth. And so I shared this text with her, and her eyes got big, and I, I then explained that, um, that uh, there, sh there should be no unwholesome word proceeding out of our mouth. And I quoted a couple of other scriptures. I quoted one scripture that said, uh, we will be held accountable for every idle word. And she was just silent and big eyes. And then she returned and she said, she said, Eli, you're piercing me. You're piercing me. 
And I saw conviction and tears come to her eyes. And I believe she, her to be a true believer, but she struggled with this issue of her mouth. And that was just the one sin Isaiah is using here to illustrate his own impurity. And I thought about writing a little pamphlet called Potty Mouth Pilgrims, because I, I think I think the pilgrims of God struggle with all kinds of things, but that is definitely one of them. But but you're piercing me. And here is what's happening. She and Isaiah saw just a little bit bigger view of God. And as a result, we go, we go smaller when we see that. It's so important. You see, when God is exalted, man is humbled. But will you note this? When, when man is exalted, when man exalts himself, uh, God becomes de-exalted in their eyes. And so it's very important that we have a high, high view of God. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, if you want to jot this down, says, when, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. I'm a pretty good guy compared to him, compared to her. I don't do this or that, or I do these other things here, and they don't or they do. It has nothing to do with anyone else. It has everything to do with God and you and this is how we catch a vision of the living God. Well, I need to conclude with our third point here. And uh, our third point is this. Not only is God exalted in holiness, and that man is humbled in lowliness, but are we just going to leave Isaiah hanging? Uh, uh, are we just going to have him come apart at the threads, uh, at the seams rather, for the rest of his life? No, no, no. The third point of our message today is this. That cleansing is granted in graciousness. Would you write that in under point C there under the exposition of Isaiah? Cleansing is granted in graciousness. And here we see the holiness of God beginning to interact with the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And I can't wait to get to those other attributes because by now your view of God, I hope, has grown. And I hope he has an exalted position in your mind, perhaps maybe one that you haven't seen prior. But we must understand that there are also other attributes of God which also balance the perfections of his nature. And here we see that cleansing is granted in graciousness. Will you note it here in verse 6? It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth. And with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. Now here is the graciousness of God, even coming out of the holiness of God. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior and Lord we have. It says, One of the seraphim flew to me. Here again, the usefulness of the seraphim's wing. But will you note Please note under this point, the initiative starts with God. That angel did not move without watching his master's face. It is a time. We've, we've run Isaiah over the coals, as it were. Now let's utilize this coal for forgiveness. But I don't dare move before uh, God, God has designed that. And so one of the seraphim flew to me showing God's initiative. He doesn't just leave Isaiah there. He doesn't say, Isaiah, clean yourself up. He doesn't say, Isaiah, lift yourself up. Uh, pull yourself up, Isaiah. Put yourself together. Uh, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, Isaiah. We hear that. Fix your own problems. Do better. Be gooder. He doesn't say any of that. 
he he leaves him in his lowness but then he 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 comes in rescue and it's a cleansing act on the part of god the seraph at the command and divine initiative of god takes this burning coal this white hot coal and he singe he picks it up with tongs and he singes the mouth of isaiah that the mouth the the uh the instrument of speaking we're back to what a prophet does a prophet speaks and the issue here is isaiah's particular sin perhaps of profanity or i don't know exactly what why isaiah said I, my lips are unclean but he takes and he singes the soft and tender lips the 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 lips that are used for speaking the lips that are used for kissing the lips that are used for tender expressions he singes in an effort to transform isaiah and isaiah is transformed as a result of this and now isaiah is ready for prophetic service now his mouth can function as a prophet's mouth ought to function and now the text says your iniquity is taken away your sin is forgiven do you see the beauty of god's graciousness and god's mercy and god's forgiveness and then later it says i heard a voice saying who who shall i send now who will go for us and isaiah says i'm ready i'm the one i'll go and then he begins his commission to the children of israel and this and only this is when we can be useful to god when we understand his exalted highness in holiness when we understand our lowness and when we have, have received that forgiveness well, I could say so much more about this uh, issue of the holiness of God, and I think I'll just leave uh, some remaining uh, uh, areas of Scripture to your study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to close here. I just want you to know that uh, there are some illustrations of God's holiness. I left them in your notes. I wasn't sure I was going to get to them anyway, but um, these are great for extra study this week. You, you can study Exodus 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and in this... In this chapter, it is Moses and the burning bush. And, and this is where he says, you need to take your shoes off, Moses, because the ground upon which you're standing is holy ground. Another one I'd like you to study this week is Nadab and Abihu. This is Leviticus 10. It also shows up in Exodus 30. Leviticus 10, uh, that is a powerful uh, portion of scripture. They engaged in some type of sin as priests. And uh, they brought... Um, uh, some strange fire before the Lord. Some think that this may have been uh, the use of alcohol, blending alcohol in their worship. I don't know for sure. But anyway, um, the fire came out from, from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And then I love verse 3. Moses says to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, uh, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so he makes a reference to his holiness there in the death of two priests. And then, uh, of course, the third one listed there, Uzzah and the Ark. And, and that's when Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant. And we look at Uzzah and we say, well, he was doing a good thing, was he not? And uh, was he not trying to prevent the Ark from hitting the dirty ground? And there's a couple of things happening there. You need to understand when you study that portion is that Uzzah was a Kohathite. He was not a Levite. Only the Levites were allowed to touch the holy things. And, and uh, so he was being disobedient there. But additionally, he was being presumptive, uh, presumptive because he 
he made the assumption in his mind that somehow his sinful fallen hand was less dirty than the routine ground of the soil, uh, soil of the ground rather. And uh, he, he erred in that because the soil had not directly been polluted by sin, but the hand of man has. And so there's some things to think about why God was so strict in those environments. But anyway, let's just wrap up today with the fact that we must have an exalted view of God's, uh, God in our mind, do we not? We, we must exalt his holiness and have a high view of God and understand that he is perfect in purity. And, and that he calls us to that level of purity. Be holy for I am holy. That element where we can share the holiness of God. We need to exalt him in our lives, in our church. We, we, need, to, we need to have him at the forefront of all of our thinking in holiness. We also need to humble ourselves, do we not? This is just some application here. And you can take this further on your own. But, but we need to humble ourselves. We need, we need to have a low view of ourselves and a high view of God. And, and we need to not be so worried about a low self-esteem or a low self-image. That's what we need in this world today. We need a little bit of a de-escalated view of ourselves, a de-exalted view of ourselves, and a re-exalted view of God. And those are, core, uh, those are related to one another. And then finally, we need to be sure that we receive the only form of cleansing and purification and, and purity in, the, in receiving the holiness of God through his forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our burning coal. That work has been done for us at the initiative of God, and we need to just receive that work by faith. We need to repent from our sins. We need to face our sins and own them as Isaiah did. And then and only then can cleansing come as a result. And I trust that you do know that forgiveness in Christ. If not, flee to Christ. Uh, take the example of Isaiah here and receive the forgiveness and purification and cleansing that only Christ can give. Well, Lord, may, may the Lord's blessing be upon you today and this week to come. And may we just reflect all of us collectively as a church on the holiness of God this week. Amen. We will see you next week as we consider the omnipresence or the omnipotence uh, of our God. Um, uh, next week. So see you then.